Green Thumbs Rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLFSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. Good morning, Bob. It's the Bob Olin Show, and we've got, uh, well, almost some sunshine and milder temperatures today as winds will be westerly through the day. It'll warm us up downtown as well as inland. In fact, we could see the first 70-degree day today in a long time. Hard to believe, Dave, isn't it? (laughs) It's been a while, that's for sure. It has been a long, long winter, and I think uh, people are really ready for spring at this time. Mm Mm-hmm. And we may, we talked about this. Typically, when it gets very, very late, we suddenly reemerge and uh, spring uh, joins us, and then all of a sudden we move into summer, so we kind of <laughs> compress that spring period. But uh, certainly lots to do. Uh, grass is greening up, plenty of moisture. we got some more moisture coming in the forecast as well, don't we, Dave? Yeah, we had uh, some yesterday, obviously, with storms. More storms possible uh, tomorrow, it looks like, with rain showers and a chance of boomers tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, that was quite a hailstorm. I know it, uh, it right. reached a lot of folks, and uh, hopefully it didn't do too much damage out there. Uh, thank heavens we don't have a lot of plant material. Right. I did go through that experience, the hailstorm in mid-January, and took out an awful lot of tomato plants. I did learn something from that little experience <laughs> that I'll share with you, for better or worse. But uh, So I had uh, maybe an eighth of an acre of tomatoes out, and uh, all growing beautifully, and uh, the Kale came through and uh, knocked them all down, and I I tried to rescue them. And frankly, uh, if you get a crop, you get a mid-season hailstorm like that, you may just as well plow down and start over because for all the nurturing I tried to do, I never could really get them to get reestablished. Once you break off that growing tip, particularly a crop like tomatoes that requires for us the entire growing season and then some, uh, if you have that misfortune, uh, just start again and think about planting some kind of a fall crop or something else. So that was that was lessons learned right there, I'll tell you. Well, I suppose you can put a netting or something over the top a couple feet up above or something to catch all the hail, but that's that would be pretty tough. Well, you know, you could, if you knew it was coming, and yeah. that was uh, kind of a shock, and I don't think it hit everyone. Uh, did it yesterday, Dave? Mm. I think no, I was uh, just, uh, yeah, here and there. I know Cloquet area got most of it in northwestern Wisconsin, too. Yeah, I saw some photos where the entire landscape was just wet with, uh, right. or white, rather, with, with hail. But it was a little scattered, and you don't know with hailstorms right. if it's worth protecting. If you had a small number of plants uh, and you saw it coming, uh, you could obviously just drag a little, a little poly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we don't like plastic at all, but it has its uses and its utility. <laughs> and uh, just a little poly covering for a short period of time, uh, making sure you're getting that off uh, when the sun reemerges. But there are certainly ways that you can protect some plants, but it can be uh, pretty devastating sometimes. And if you've got a small garden plot, probably worth protecting if you can time it just about right, Dave. Right. Yeah. Well- we're finally getting to the point now where we can maybe start putting stuff in the ground, you think? Well, yes, yeah, some things, but I want to <laughs> I want to caution people just a little right. bit. Maybe we'll talk we'll talk about that. Uh there are, there are many things and I like to divide it up this way at least in my mind. In the early spring and I would obviously consider this still early spring, think about your landscape. Uh don't think about your gardens. Uh, everything's pretty wet, and the worst thing we could do is, is get out and tromp a lot, try to till in wet garden areas, and we get a lot of compression, a lot of compaction. Uh, one aspect of uh, really good quality growth is good uh, porous soil, and you can destroy soil structure by doing a lot of over-tilling, by tromping around, like compacting a lot. So 
it, it's way too early to be putting out frost-sensitive plants anyway. So right. uh, focus on uh, what you can in the landscape. Uh, just clean things up. There was a lot of litter that was dropped this year. Uh, there was a long winter, and so there was a lot of you know, branches, pine cones, pine needles, uh, depending on the types of trees that you've got. And just get a good fan rake out there. Uh, obviously, stay away from those hard uh, metal tongue garden rakes. We see people trying to rake out this uh, dead grass that's in there in the process. Remember, if you got grass there, you've got a, a plant with a relatively shallow root system. It's got underground uh, both stolons, which are stems uh, that run along the surface, and rhizomes, which are stem tissue as well. It rolls just a little bit below the surface. And uh, each one of these uh, produces the, has the potential to produce new plants. So if you come in with a, a, a stiff garden rake and you rake a lot of this stuff out, what you think is thatch. Now, we don't have a lot of thatch in this area, and someone can certainly prove me wrong, but... Uh, uh, thatch is something, and dethatching is a process that occurs a little bit farther south where we really have a lot of seasons. We have a lot of real uh, vigorous bluegrass growth where you're irrigating and you're putting a lot of nitrogen on because thatch is a layer of material. It's actually uh, not the clippings, but it's, uh, it's dead plant uh, rhizome material, and it can be a, an area maybe an inch, inch and a half thick, and it, it, it can be removed if you have that thick thatch area should be removed probably because it keeps water from penetrating but you really have to have active bluegrass growth and really have to be pushing the plant to have this occur um, you know I bought in the idea well it should be dethatching like uh, a lot of the rest of the world does this time of year and I went out looking for thatch even on some of our very best bluegrass lawns uh, some on the turf areas some well maintained uh, golf courses even and I tell you I couldn't find a thatch layer so uh, don't fall victim to the, all the ads uh, advertising dethatching equipment or services for dethatching. We really don't have a lot of a lot of thatch in the area, so you really want to stay away. You're not raking out thatch when you're you've got a garden rake there and you're pulling up a little bit of dead grass. You're just actually damaging the plant, and then it has to get reestablished. So, fan rake. Just take off what's on the surface, and you can take this material if it's leaves. Certainly, right into the compost pile. They can go. Uh, in my situation, I've got a lot of pine needles, so I will actually pull those up, leave them in a pile. I use those, not in the compost pile, but I use them for mulch. Uh, any kind of woody material like that is a lot of carbon. It's very slow to break down in a compost pile. It can. It can be put there with some a little additional nitrogen, but because it's slow to break down, it works out real well as a mulch up on the soil surface where you really don't want it to break down. It controls the weeds, it, it, it retains moisture, and I think both weed control and moisture retention is going to be a factor this year. You know, Dave, we've talked about it in the past, both the Farmer's Almanac and NOAA's Climate Prediction Center, they're saying, and they've been fairly right, they're saying we're going to have, in the early spring here, average moisture, and I don't know where we're at, Dave, uh, you're pretty good at pulling up some of those facts and figures. Uh, but, a little uh, above average at this point, but that could change. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, we're a little above average in terms of moisture, is that mm -hmm. correct? Yep. And, of course, we're not going to complain about that. And uh, they're saying average a little above, but until we get into what we call meteorological summer, that's June, July, and August, mm -hmm. that's when all the plants are really take off and grow. It's probably the month of July that's going to concern me more than anything if it does get hot and dry. So mulch is going to be important. Uh, a water supply is going to be important to, to get people through that that critical period when uh, fruit is beginning to form on our tomatoes and other things. We want to make sure that we have a consistent uh, moisture supply. So 
We're going to see if they're right or wrong. This is one time when both the Farmers Almanac and uh, NOAA are in agreement, and uh, they might both be wrong. We know the way uh, weather patterns can certainly change, but yeah. so far they've been pretty close, pretty right, so we'll take any moisture we get this time of year, and then uh, we'll have kind of a strategy in place if it does get real dry uh, midsummer, so we can bring those plants through, Dave. Hey, Bob, let's head to the phone real quick this morning. Hi, who's this? Oh, this is Rhea. Hi. Hey. Hi, Rhea. Hi. So I have uh, some quick questions. Um, speaking of mulch, um, quick questions. Okay, so af- it was very dry here, so I was really glad I had a lot of mulch. So I'm looking around here. I have I had to have a basement put under my house, so I have some ground that was kind of scraped by machinery, but it's been like 20 years. So what's growing there are wild strawberries and some, you know, I threw some pasture stuff out. So. Sure. It's not like really thick with quackgrass. So my idea was to finally, now that I'm retired, I can do something there, put in some strawberry plants. And then I thought maybe I should do potatoes. Like they say, potatoes are good for new ground. And then I wondered about mulch because I have slugs. So right now I've got it all covered with straw because I'm not going to till it or anything. I'm just going to dig a trench and plant and then I was wondering because now I have access to a lot of cedar shavings and I didn't know if that's appropriate for strawberries or potatoes oh there's lots of questions there Um, sorry no (laughs) I think that's I think that's great and this is the way you kind of want to approach it number one you see wild strawberries I think one of the reasons we're seeing and it's always probably good to follow up if, if things are growing naturally there follow up with a cultivated variety right. uh, we all know we picked a few wild strawberries and uh, you don't get much off those plants do you you really want to come no. in with some of them <laughs> I, mean, I'm some of the I like the big ones yeah <laughs> of course and I think that uh, my suspicion first it's probably full sun is that correct full full sun Slope, gravel slope. Oh, okay, you know, it's just great you're taking it on as a retirement hobby because they say one thing you got to do as we age, we got to keep the uh, keep the mind working. So you're you're keeping all of these little uh, factoids and dimensions in place here. First, you got good drainage, you got good full sun. You probably, uh, you know, I I think you can certainly grow both potatoes as well as uh, strawberries. They're they're quite different crops, of course, because your strawberries, I would encourage you to grow what we call a June-bearing strawberry, which is going to give you the highest yield. The the yield and the, uh, the fruiting and fruit production is concentrated. Even though they're called June-bearing varieties, we get them in early July because we're obviously just a little bit behind the rest right. of the year. Right. But we also get some extraordinarily uh, good and very, very high-quality June-bearing varieties. So I think I would probably, uh, are you pretty much, other than the uh, the strawberries that are there, are you weed-free pretty much at this point? You said no quack grass. It's no, yeah, I mean, there's weeds, but they're not the really, like the kind I'm fighting out in my garden. Um, they're more, yeah. um, I'm not sure, this is terrible. The weird thing is, is that there's some moss in there. Even though it's full sun, I have to tell you, it is red clay. You know, I'm up oh, here it is red, red clay. clay. I'm up here in the red clay. But okay. I have grown strawberries before, and they've done very well. Okay. So, um, you know, and I know a little bit about growing them. I just, I'm kind of in the place now where I don't till, I just put things in the ground, and it seems to work if you use enough mulch and compost, you know. Yeah, I, I like the idea. Um, 
you got heavy red clay. You know, one of my thoughts there was, as you talk about that, that, uh, you know, you got some native uh, strawberries, but fertilities might be a little low. And obviously this compaction that comes from a heavy red clay, you don't want to be doing any planting for a while because that will really get rock hard. Right, right. I'm waiting. I, I, I kind of, you know, I've been gardening in this spot for 25 years, so I do know that you need to not... I'm being real careful. Like, I've got it all covered with straw. I'm not walking on it. At some point, I'm going to have to put some paths in, you know, so I have, like, you know, a walking spot. But, yeah, Yeah. so I know I'm not doing anything yet. That's why I'm asking now in preparation, um, if and when it does dry out, the cedar. (laughs) It will. Almost guaranteed. (laughs) Okay, well, they're shavings. And so, you know, I called a master gardener, and they said, well, strawberries are acid-loving, and then they couldn't remember if potatoes... I mean, this used to be an old potato farm, so I figure sure. you know, sure. they, they must like the... Well, I grow good potatoes anyway, usually, and out in the big garden, but I never have enough room, so I thought this would be a place to grow more potatoes. And, sure. Um, you know, may have... have and uh, I'm a big potato fan, growing a lot of potatoes, growing a lot of potatoes, uh and um, just love the crop. They're well-suited for this area. you got two different crops, so, you know, potatoes you're going to treat yeah. like an annual because you're right. going to harvest every year. Right. And then, and then the other plot, only grow them this year, right, and not next right. year because I have to do something else. Okay, okay, that's just great. Uh, your strawberries, we're going to treat those as a perennial crop because you get the June berries in. Do you have plants lined up at this point or a I sort do, of a strawberry plant? I do have plants lined up called Sparkle. Okay. Oh, you're going to plant a sparkle. Okay. Uh, sparkle is an ever-bearing variety. I thought they were June-bearing. I got that's the okay. wrong kind then. I ordered no, that's okay. Time. You're going to put them in the ground, and what you're going to do is you will get, uh, it's an ever-bearing, so they will be a perennial for you. Uh, you're going to be able to harvest, and you probably want to pull the first blossoms off early, but you're going to be able to harvest that crop uh, throughout the season, a little bit later in the season, you could take a crop off that. Where June bears, you'd have to wait till the next year. So you're going to uh, you're going to do really pretty well with with that too. And they will overwinter for you. So you've got plenty of straw. That's good. This is a plant that you're going to get in. You're going to mulch it, as you point out there. You've got plenty of mulch worked up. I would probably take that compost that you have because you'll have one opportunity until these plants diminish over time and that could be uh longer than three years but typically three to five years you have one opportunity to get uh improve the uh the texture in heavy clay that's going to be important to get that compost in there and then you also drag some nutrient in as well you probably have plenty of potassium there you want a little nitrogen so before you put those plants in the ground uh, you'll let things dry down you keep the plants dormant or refrigerated um, if you have them and then uh, you want to uh, make sure you work that bit up. So let's work in compost. Have you ever taken a soil test? I have, and I, I, I. Um, this is a different spot, though. And my test, I'm a little. Let's see. Said I needed to put sulfur in because something was too high, so I did that. But this is a different part that's okay. never been gardened, so I haven't tested. But I imagine it's low in nitrogen. I, I can tell it's low in it's going to be yes. low in nitrogen. Yeah. Virtually all of our soils don't have much residual nitrogen at all. If you're right, and so you want to incorporate some of that. So you're going to work where your strawberries. We'll focus on that quickly. You're going to work on developing that, getting compost in, getting some nutrient in there. 
I wouldn't worry too much about the uh, the phosphorus with your clays. You can have plenty of that there. Right. You could work in a little bit of a even a lawn fertilizer without the uh, without the herbicide because you've got nitrogen, no phosphorus, which you don't need, and ah. a little bit of potassium, which you will need. So that's an ah. inexpensive way to uh, work that in. Good also idea. help break down the compost. So let's get that uh, that clay right. broken down a little bit because you get one shot if you're putting in uh, your your perennial right. strawberries. Right. And so you want to do that now at this point, then we can come over the top with some nitrogen in the future. Uh, as far as the acidity, I wanted to comment quickly about that. Both potatoes and and uh, strawberries will grow in a slightly acid soil. So your your advice, you got it. It's acidic, but not acidic like a like a rhododendron or a blueberry. Okay. Uh, our, our soils are naturally acidic, just a little bit below a neutrality of pH of seven. So you probably are just about where you want to be. So we're not going to adjust the pH down from there. I think you're going to be just fine. Your native soils, uh, if you look back at your soil test, chances are that pH is about six, six, five, six, eight. If yeah, it's native actually, soil it and, uh, mm. pardon me? It was seven, but that's all in my garden. I think it's different in this place that's never been gardened. Yeah, never been gardened. You, you, it would be unusual to find a pH of seven. So chances okay. are you're, you're okay. going to be okay there. So I would stay away from the sulfur. You really don't need it. Okay. I would work on getting the compost in, in particular, both potatoes as well as the, uh, the area for the strawberries. But you get one shot with strawberries. Let's work that up. Let's look at potatoes. Don't put them in too early. I'll work some compost in there as well. But again, you're going to grow that for one year. So okay. you can modify and do other things in the future. Let's not acidify. Let's make sure we get, uh, again, some nitrogen. Now, people talk a lot about potassium for potatoes, which are is important, but you've got a big plant, so you're low in nitrogen. We've got to get a nitrogen source. Compost will bring some of it in, but also uh, you probably want to modify with either a well-rotted manure if you want to stay strictly organic or with a, uh, well, I just use a um, uh, herbicide-free uh, lawn fertilizer and That's incorporate some idea. of that. Yeah, because you're getting the nitrogen, you're getting the potassium, you're not getting any phosphorus. You don't need that. But uh, potatoes are heavy feeders. You're not going to really plant till about the third week in May, because right. uh, we don't want them to jump out and get frosted off. They survive that, but if they take a frost in the spring, it it cuts your yields by about two thirds. So let's. There's plenty of season for potatoes, so don't rush it. Even if you went about Memorial Day, I've planted them as late as June 10th in the ground and and gotten real nice crops. The risk of going too early on potatoes and getting them out of the ground, and then we have a frost, and they never really, they grow, but we never get the yields as a result of that first damaging frost. So I think you're really, uh, you're on to something. Save all that mulch for conserving moisture. It'll be good for both potatoes as well as for your your strawberries, and I I think you're definitely on to something here. So you think the cedar, this is what my question, the cedar mulch, because the straw will attract slugs, so I'm thinking the cedar is what I was thinking because the slugs don't like it. Yeah, I think that would be fine. Uh, light layer, it'll it'll be, you know, it is very resilient. So it'll it'll and that's fine as a mulch. You really don't okay. want it to break down. I think it should be just fine. Okay. You might okay. uh, for the slugs. Um, they're there. Uh, they typically uh, want the moist conditions that are retained under a straw. So I think maybe a little lighter layer of either straw or mulch, and also mow the area around there. So if you have a hot, dry area in your perimeter, then those slugs won't necessarily work their way in across that hot barrier. So if okay. you've got the opportunity, 
or if you want to just take a little bit of garden space, uh, mow it very, very tight, get it hot there so that they don't, uh, that there should be no vegetation so those slugs don't move in from the grassy or the wooded areas in okay, your garden plot. Perfect. Yeah, because it's already in the middle of a lawn, sort of. So I figured, you know, I just don't want to encourage them. So, yeah, well, that sounds really good. I, I thank you for your advice, and you always give such good advice. And I love your show. Thank you. Well, you're so kind. And I love what you're doing. Great retirement activity. <laughs> and I know you're going to love both the strawberries and potatoes. Anything you grow yourself is so much better yeah, than anything yeah, you're fun you too. Yeah. Right, thanks. Okay, yeah, thanks, great. Bob. Thanks for the call. We're at 937. Bob, we got to take a break. Be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show coming up. And we're back with more of the Bob Olin Show and another call, too, Bob. Hi, who's this? Hi, it's Ron. And I just have a quick question. It's one that Bob has probably answered a thousand times. When to seed Alon this spring, uh, especially with this uh, uh, wet and cold spring, and when to fertilize. Okay, both. Very, very good questions. And we're going to separate the two. Um, If we're seeding, there's no fertility because fertility all has uh, some salt component and these emerging uh, germinating seedlings are very, very sensitive. So let's split those two ideas up. Let's talk about the area that you're going to seed. Uh, Again, I go back to my original thought there very early in the year. If it's wet, let's stay off that. Uh, When you're going to seed, uh, you want to work a little bit at preparing your seed bed and you can start this anytime things dry down a little bit so spring seeding is is very uh, uh, advantageous can work real nicely for you but not too early so you want to get an area you want to have uh, a seed bed of some type prepared there so we want to have seed soil contact so you're going to spread a little topsoil or spread a little peat and then the critical thing about seeding is particularly with our bluegrass uh, 21 days for that to really germinate, and that seedbed has to be moist over that period of time. We can get a little moisture if it comes regularly, but otherwise we have to have some kind of irrigation or sprinkler set up. And every day you're going to hit it with a light mist. You're not going to uh, soak it in or not going to wash any of the seed off. So seedbed prepared, seedbed uh, seed distributed, pressed into the soil or lightly raked into the soil, And then you can cover with a little bit of chopped straw or they use cellulose products. That's to retain the moisture. So we need moisture for 21 days. If we get, if we don't do this, we get a little rain, the seed germinates, and then it gets hot and dry and it all burns out on you. So we got to get some roots down. So that's the, the real critical thing, making sure it gets moisture every day for those 21 days. Then you're off and you're running. And at that point, Then we want to change our watering regimen because we're going to be probably into June then. And uh, then we want to get a good inch, inch and a half on maybe every five or six days. So we begin to drive those roots down so those young uh, seedlings begin to work their way down looking for the water so we establish a good solid root system. It's a lot of chatter there, but that's the key. And if you don't do that, you can can certainly struggle with seeding. But you can do a beautiful job this time of your seeding. Wait just a little bit till you can work up the soil and then go from there, even if you went around the uh, yeah, third week in May or if you can go earlier, I think that's fine. The critical thing is let's not get on there when it's too wet. As far as fertility goes, um, we really want when we're going to apply, and this is on existing lawns, we keep all the fertilizer off the seeded area, but on, on your existing lawn, uh, this time of year, now you be aware, with the moisture we've had, you're going to get quite a bit of uh, top growth, quite a bit of uh, blade growth, so you may be ready, have the lawnmower blades sharpened to get ready to go there. 
But uh, I would say uh, wait a little longer. Oftentimes I'll say when you've mowed it once, then at that point the, the, the uh, plants are very actively growing. And again, you can look about toward the end of May. And if you're going to make that one application, it can be very timely at that time. And again, uh, want to put it on a straight fertilizer just before rain so that it carries it in. If you're using a weed and feed product, and we're going away from some of that because people want to leave the weeds, the broadleaf weeds in there in some cases. But if you are using a weed and feed, that goes on after the rain when the plant tissue is still wet. If it's not raining, you irrigate so that the herbicide granules stick to the broad leaves. Lots of content there. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it's perfect. And uh, I'm a little older now, so I'll probably call next year and ask the same question. (laughs) I just, I love it. I hope the advice is the same. You know, sometimes we learn a little bit more as we go along. I will say one other thing. Uh, two two weekends are really important. Memorial weekend in the spring for doing a lot of work. Labor Day. And if I had my choice, even if you didn't get the fertility on in the spring, uh, if you're going to only make one application of a fertilizer, Labor Day is the time because this is when the plant is extending these rhizomes and we're getting plant density and more plants being produced rather than just blades. So uh, if you have a thin grass or we don't make it through the uh, summer months because it gets hot and dry, uh, circle the Labor Day weekend on your calendar and let's. Uh, that's when we want to uh, take care of the, the lawn as well. Okay? Yep. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you much for the call. Thank Appreciate you. it. Hey, Bob, 944 already. We'll take another break and be right back. What's your favorite color? Green. Healthy, vibrant shades of green. The green you get from strong roots growing in good soil, enriched with garden green compost from WLSSD. Natural premium compost worked into the soil or used as mulch. For healthy gardens, trees, lawns, and shrubs, locally produced garden green. Compost you'll dig. Now available at WLSSD's Yard Waste Compost Site and Materials Recovery Center. Find out more at WLSSD.com. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show, 946 the time now at KDAL. And, uh, Bob, if you want, we're heading right back to the phones again. (laughs) (laughs) Who's this? Um, Hi, this is Kathy from Friedenberg. All right. And uh, I have a question about some apple trees. I have a friend that has... um, three apple trees and one of them is a crab apple tree and she's had them for almost five years and they have not um, produced any fruit so she's wondering why okay uh very good question very common question and uh do you happen to know the varieties of the apple i'm sorry i don't <laughs> okay but they haven't fruited uh for one thing they've got a a good pollinator there and I'm kind of a big fan of getting at least uh, one or two crabs. I'll, you know, everybody's got favorites, but uh, I will share a couple crab varieties with you. Then I'll answer your question. But uh, we love Dogo, which is a very, very nice, uh, oftentimes listed as an ornamental crab. It produces a, a wonderful uh, fruit uh, for making uh, jams and jellies. I like Centennial, which is a beautiful crab as well. And then um, uh, chestnut. So they're a very, very good eating crab. So, uh, crab apples that people they they kind of work their way against them uh, because they're not the real large eating apples, but they can be uh, they can serve a couple of functions. You get the right varieties, and they're very very productive, and they will oftentimes fruit before anything else will. And then they're wonderful pollinators, so a, a crab apple will pollinate the other trees. So we got the trees there. That's good pollination isn't the issue. They're probably not getting on the true two trees that haven't fruited or haven't blossomed yet. 
I think it's probably just a question of time. Uh, and uh, the, the time it takes depends on a couple of things. It depends on the varieties. Now, we've got some, one that we love called Sweet 16. Sweet 16 uh, will take oftentimes 10, 11, 12 years before it fruits, but then it's a very, very wow. long-lived tree, and you'll have it for you know, probably the rest of a person's lifetime, 50, 60 years. Great tree, great apple, nice and sweet, but boy, it takes patience. Uh, others, and the other factor that can come into play, and you may not know this, but it's the type of rootstock that they're on. Um, if you've got just a standard rootstock, uh, the trees will go a little taller. They get above the deer browsing line, which I like. They take longer to come into fruit. And then we've got um, we've got uh, grafted trees that will be semi-dwarf or dwarf semi And the the, the, uh, the more you dwarf the tree, uh, the sooner they will come into production. But they tend to burn out a little bit too. So you, if you've got a uh, dwarf tree, you can get earlier production. But uh, the tree doesn't live quite as long. Most of our trees are probably on semi-dwarf rootstock, which gives you a tree that's a little bit more manageable. It'll be you know, uh, maximum height, 15 feet maybe in height, so you can get to the fruit. And I'm assuming a lot of them are semi-dwarf grafted. That's probably what she has here. It's five years is not unusual. It's just a question of time. Keep taking care of that tree. Make sure that uh, it gets a little fertility this time of year. It gets pruned up a bit, and then just a little bit of patience. But two good fruiting trees and then a crab apple, which helps with pollination, a good combination. I would say just be patient at this point. <laughs> I will pass that information on, Bob, and thank you so much for answering questions over the air here. Okay, thanks, Bob. Right, you're very call. welcome. Thank okay, you. take care. Good Bye. call and mm-hmm. not an uncommon question. Like I say, uh, I will pass on one variety that uh, has come down from the Canadian breeding system, Prairie Magic, which is a uh, is one of those trees that does break very early and produces fruit within the first couple of years so that's become quite popular and uh, if you can find one out there at your local uh, landscape dealer uh, grab it because the world is aware that you don't have to wait five ten years to get fruit it does fruit very very quickly now what's the difference between an apple tree and a crab apple tree well, they're both malas, so they're both okay. uh, apples. They're, they're, they're just kissing cousins. That's okay. all. They're just a little bit different, uh, typically crab apples. Now, we do have, again, another bunch called strictly ornamental crabs, and we've got the edible crabs. Ah. And um, the ornamentals, uh, oftentimes you drop the fruit, you get the very, very small fruit, and they really are mm-hmm. have been bred and selected for just decorative purposes. Sure. But the birds still like the real small <laughs> fruit. But then, then we do have a couple of these. I mentioned the dolo crab, the hoppy crab, the centennial, the chestnut. They're crab apples because the fruit is smaller. But these are probably ping-pong to golf ball-sized fruit that uh-huh. uh, still can be very edible and they can be consumed or they can be used uh, certainly in jellies. So we've got strictly ornamentals, then we've got edible crabs, and then we've got our, our more conventional eating apples, Dave. I haven't got out to even see if there are buds on my uh, tree yet. I'm assuming they're popping out at some point pretty quickly. Well, the funny thing is they were very, very tight, mm-hmm. and if the people are asking about pruning up, uh, you can <laughs> still prune a tree at this time if you like. As soon as those buds break... Uh, then we kind of rearrange all the hormones in the tree, and yeah. it's not considered dormant prune, so it's not quite as desirable. But, uh, uh, you know, it's not uh, not going to damage the tree particularly. It's just we would 
prefer a dormant prune. If the buds are still tight, they get out there and make one or two cuts. Don't over prune, but it's the ideal time to be doing that, Dave. Yeah, I'm guessing the sunshine and the warm temperatures will get those uh, buds a popping here pretty quick. Yeah, it's just amazing how fast that'll change because they're <laughs> ready to go and they were just held back. So I think over the next couple of days, we're going to get a lot of bud break. So if you if you have the opportunity, still need to do a little cleanup, a little pruning on those trees, uh, today would probably be uh, the best day. All right, we'll take another break. More of the Bob Olin Show. In fact, we'll wrap things up here after this. Well, Bob, I am 10 days into the no-mow May here already. And I've got no <laughs> grass to grow in anywhere, and none of the weeds are even popping out yet. Grass <laughs> may, uh, the no-mow may be uh, nearly a non-event, but I wouldn't say that, Dave, because I think uh, it's yeah. going to change real quick. Yeah, I think you're right. It'll. Uh, and I believe it started in uh, one of the Wisconsin cities, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Spread to uh, Superior and other places. And sure. uh, I heard even down in the Twin Cities, that little uh, <laughs> suburb known as Edina, which is known for their beautiful uh, yeah. homes and nicely manicured lawns, have kind of <laughs> gone to no more. So that's going to be very, very interesting. I think we got time uh, for one quick call here, Bob. Before one more we... caller. Yeah, okay, I hope. We'll, we'll see if it's a short question. Hi, who's this? Hi, um, this is Carol, and I want to know how far apart my trees have to be, my apple trees, to cross-pollinate. Oh, great. Good idea. Uh, The the distance really uh, isn't important. Uh, You want to be, if you can get those trees at least 15 feet apart, we don't want them much tighter than that because it's... uh, you know, that'll, they'll shade each other and they'll start to compete with each other. So uh, we want to have a minimum distance of about 15 feet. And then it really doesn't matter uh, that that pollen is going to blow in the wind. The insects are going to be around. So if you're 30 feet apart, you're still going to get good pollination. So okay, not too, the, the biggest thing is not too tight. Uh, we can only err on the side of things being too close where they compete with each other. Uh, rather than really realistically too far apart. That pollen will move around. We've got a lot of insects flying. They'll find the blossoms, and they'll <laughs> carry the fo- pollen. Okay? Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot Thank for the call. You. Appreciate it. Yeah, it That's out an interesting that. question, yes. Uh, but, and I've been guilty of this, too many too many yeah. trees and not enough space and cramming them in a little too tight, so that really uh, doesn't work so well. You're probably better off. Again, an apple tree is a long-term proposition. If right. you can... Uh, you get them off, you get them established. I mentioned one of our varieties, Sweet 16, it will take 10 years to come into production. Is it good to, really to plant them as a pair? Oh, uh, We always want at least yeah. two, okay. and then uh, three, and I like to have that one crab in there. That's real nice as well, so mm-hmm. we want to kick a lot of pollen apart. I think it, uh, the farther, the more isolated you are in rural areas, the more important it is to have right. multiple trees. If you're in town, uh, there's a lot of pollen that gets right around uh uh, a lot of folks do have apple trees, so you can get away with just planting one variety. Some do fertilize themselves to some extent, but we always want more of that pollen being uh, certainly being moved around. Dave, when we, when we have the opportunity, we will talk a little bit more about uh, pollinators and pollinator gardens and concepts like no-mo maize and other <laughs> things. Bee lawns, uh, this has suddenly become extremely fashionable for people and mm-hmm. i think it's a good thing because we're aware of uh certainly the need for pollinating bees as well as other insects out there so but that's a that's a little bit more of a discussion than we have time for right now at this point <laughs> yeah in fact we're just about out of time at this point anything else you wanted to add bob 
Well, I just want to uh, thank our callers. A lot of calls today, mm-hmm. good calls, and uh, some a little bit more involved than others. And uh, I want to thank actually our sponsors. We've got a lot of good compost. I'm a big compost fan. I will say that on public television, channel 8 WDSEWRPT on the range, uh, we will be talking compost this Thursday uh-huh. night at 7 o'clock. So, big compost fan. We never have enough, so we're glad we have our municipal compost system, the Western Lakes Superior Sanitary District, that's producing a lot of high-quality product for us as well. Fantastic. Bob, thanks. We'll catch you again next Tuesday. You bet. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. And by WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig.